everything depends on to have a solid cloud slash NFV platform in place that you build the automation capabilities. And what people also often forget is that you need to transform the operations, the processes, the way you work. Um, because if you don't do that, you don't get the benefits from automation. You need to have a way of moving from a very manual model. You create these slices, so why, once you do things, it needs to be automated. Welcome to another episode of Transmissions from Tomorrow, the show that gives you an inside route to the people driving the digital transformation of business and technology in the world of telecommunications. And I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the privilege of having Henrik Basile in the studio with me today. Hi, Henrik. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great today. Thank you so much yeah. for uh, making time to catch up with me. Um, yeah. I, we were talking earlier and you were saying that uh, you're having a record warm uh, period in uh, Sweden there, whereas uh, here in Sydney, we're having record cold. Um, I, it must be a, a bit of a change for you to have a, a warm period because uh, I think you mentioned it being cold and rainy and wet there for a while. Yeah, it's this year has been fantastic. I mean, it's been like five, six weeks of warm weather in 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 May, which is extremely unusual. They say it hasn't been this warm since the 18th century or something since they started measuring. So it's been amazing. Wow, I bet uh, I bet a bunch of climate people will jump up and down about global warming. But uh, anyway, so uh, Henrik. Yeah. Your role, you're an expert in network architecture evolution, and you're inside uh, Ericsson's business area, digital services. I, I wonder if you could maybe just take a couple of minutes and just uh, introduce yourself and I guess just give us an outline of what that role actually means. Yeah, I'm, as, as you said, uh, expert, uh, Roland. Uh, within Ericsson, uh, expert, being an expert is, is actually like an alternative career path. So it's a leadership position, but you don't uh, you don't have any direct reports. So your role is to work with uh, technology and architecture to to look a little bit broader at, at things, to cross different products, to look at long term. Are we using the right technology? Are we using it the right way? Do we get the synergies that, that we need? And look at it from a bit more of a strategic perspective and, and, and see how things fit and, and how how that we're doing it correctly so, so, and guiding the company, you could say. Okay. I um, I like the idea that a number of other companies have sort of these key roles where you become a subject matter expert and, and you're kind of the one person on the planet who really knows this stuff and you're providing that thought leadership. And I guess uh, in a sense, that's kind of what the expert role is there. Now, before we jump into your role in a lot more detail, I wonder if we can just uh, step sideways for a moment just to help listeners get to know you better personally. Um, where are you from originally and, and kind of where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, or I'm born in Gothenburg, Sweden, but I grew up in a mid-sized uh, town called uh, Norrköping, uh, in a bit south of Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, and uh, well, regular, I'm, I'm happy uh, upbringing and developed quite early, uh, very passion for technology, building stuff, electronics, home, and playing with the early home computers like a Commodore 64, this now iconic computer. So that that's kind of what led me onto this path that those 
you're a man after days. my own. You're a man after my own heart. I, uh, yeah. I also uh, okay. The, the age of fourteen, I think I saved up for about six months uh, with my pocket money, bought a Commodore yeah. sixty four, and got yeah. to the shop. My mum drove me there only to find out I'd forgotten I needed to buy a, a screen or a TV. But she, yeah. um, <laughs> were, were you one of those kids that pulled everything apart and put it back together and, and found spare parts at work, or were you more focused on the the software and the, I guess the engineering side of it? What was your What was your real passion with your early sort of you know technical focus? Yeah, I mean, uh, both. I mean, I, I built. I mean, I started with more electronics and built uh, uh, those kind of stuff. But then, well, the computers was mostly programming. But I always wanted to sort of build something. Always had some gold or some particular type of program that I wanted to do. And 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 so for me, it's it's always been like that. Where I mean, technology is never and. And in itself, it, for me, the fun thing is really what you can do with it, what what, uh, what what we can achieve. And every new technology brings some new qualities, things you can do, new things you can do, or yeah, that you could do things more easily than you could do before. So that that's really what has been driving me all since very early days, actually, and and also through my career. Right. Well, that's uh, that's probably held you in good stead over the career path because I was uh, mm-hmm. I was one of those kids that pulled everything apart, left it there for a while, and then came back and figured I couldn't play with it until I fixed it. And I'd always end up with spare bits, <laughs> and I could never work out right. what the spare bits right. were for. It took me a while to switch right. to switch into that uh, understanding. You had you had to have an outcome. Um, now, give us some insight into kind of I guess your academic path. I'm always interested in, in how people came to be inside Ericsson and what kind of academic background mm-hmm. they sort of came to. Um, I, yeah. I remember reading you had a master's uh, a degree in computer science and technology from memory. Um, give us a bit mm-hmm. of background on kind of what that was like. Uh, what drove you to, uh, you know, obviously you had an early passion for technology and computers. Did you see, see yourself going into more of a programmer and developer space in the systems or whatever? Or was it just a, an entry into that sort of career path to go into engineering and technology? Yeah, I guess it was more like an entry that what drove me there was really the passion of technology. I don't know exactly if I had any plan of what what I wanted to do after but it it was really um, natural at that point since I was so interested in technology so I, I started to to study computer science and technology in in Linköping uh, which is actually the neighbor city of Norrköping where I grew, grew up and that um, it was uh, great fun I think I mean I enjoyed that and and then you, then you could I mean go a bit deeper and get also the more theoretical understanding of, of things that were the stuff that you've been playing around with which was nice as well gave you and uh what yeah. i really liked about those years was also that you got a very good training of the sort of being analytic about things but really analyzing problems solving problems and, and uh that was really the the big thing for me with with the education that you really got got to train those things yeah, I guess that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about university. If they, you know, I have a lot of young kids now around our own children. We've got a 14 year old son and a 16 year old daughter, and often their friends just want to drop out and go and sort of have a gap year, as it were, and then figure out what they want to do. But I always say to them, you know, university gives you just a good basic fundamental structure on how to problem solve and how to plan and, and achieve outcomes as opposed to just trying to make things up. Yeah. You, you've uh, had about 25 years from uh, memory in, I guess, the whole telco industry in space. I mean, from coming out of your degree, um, walk us through what that 25-odd year, I mean, that's two and a half decades. That's yeah. a, a solid pedigree. Um, what's that sort of career path look like? What are some of the highlights? Yeah. yeah. Actually, when I, when I finished the university, I had like two 
criteria for what I wanted to do. I did. I didn't want to start to work for a big company like Ericsson, and I didn't want to to uh, work in a large large city like Stockholm. So I started. <laughs> so I started to work for a consultancy company in in a in a small city called uh, Kalsta in Sweden. And uh, after just after a few years, we we got acquired by Ericsson. We, it was half owned by Ericsson when we started. So I ended up in Ericsson anyway, and. Then uh, a bit later, I realized that uh, working with Ericsson and, and following a career there, it really, I really had to move to Stockholm. So I, f- I failed on that one too, but uh, I don't regret it. Uh, I was going to say, I, w- uh, I wouldn't consider it a failure. I think uh, if anything, it's more, <laughs> more like landing on your feet. And uh, it's yeah, interesting, isn't yeah. it, that uh, a number of people I've spoken to from the Ericsson team, they've, they've either worked for Ericsson for a while and, and like Jan Carlson, he sort of went off and did something in a startup and then built that into a, a, a unicorn billion dollar company and then got enticed back. In your case, you've obviously had a career path that started out into a different angle and then Ericsson's acquired the company. Um, but it's interesting that when people settle into Ericsson, they, they seem to find themselves with a very comfortable home where they've got a lot of opportunities. And then obviously, like yourself, over the last two and a half decades, you, you've really found a space for yourself that you're now you know, an, an expert SME, that you've, you've got this amazing opportunity. Um, what, uh, what, are there any sort of really big career highlights sort of during that period in Ericsson? Like, are there a couple of things that jumped out that you just look back and you're often sharing those anecdotes about the sort of the highlights of the last 25 years to get you to where you are now? I think, I mean, in general, I think the, I mean, the, the really good thing about working in a company like Ericsson that I didn't understand at young age is uh, that you have a lot of opportunities to work with many different things. So I've been jumping between different uh, areas and, and obviously we've seen a lot of techno- technical evolution over these years, which has been driving it. So, uh, I mean, the, the, that's the really fun thing is, is that it, uh, it's constantly changing. So I've worked in so many different areas and, and I worked uh, abroad for a few years also in the U.S. in a Exxon part of Ericsson in, and so I lived in, in California for three years. That was really fun. And, and also you learn other things by, by, by working in another country. That, that was a really good thing. Wow. What, uh, um, what were you doing in California with um, Ericsson, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, well, uh, worked with, we, we had a CDMA uh, business units there uh, for a couple of years uh, that that uh, was part of. So we I was working a lot with our building up our packet core uh, solutions there. I was also working a bit with standardization at the in those days in the, right. it was used to be a 3G PP2 so that, that was also yeah an experience that's it, that you're much. right about moving abroad though it's like I mean if you've if you've lived your whole life in one nation and I guess in your case uh, even though you might have had holidays living in, in Sweden mm-hmm. uh, US would have been a, a bit of a culture shock um, yeah. tell me about the so your current role is I mean it's everything I've read and all the stuff you've been working on and amazing I think patents and other things um, give us a little bit of insight on kind of what's the what's a day in, in Henrik's life like uh, as I guess an expert in network architecture evolution what does that a current role yeah. actually entail and, and just give a little bit of a sample of kind of you know you jump out of bed you go to work what sort of fun things do you do on a daily basis and, and I guess what are some of the big innovations you're working on in medium to long term yeah, yeah. Now, I mean the, the fun thing thing is that i mean 
days are very different and I mean one one day I can work with our, our design teams in, in discussing very detailed aspects of, of how we uh, realize things in our products and solutions. The next day I could be in a customer meeting discussing how to, to transform the networks or how to use the technology. The day after that I could be working on strategies or, 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 or uh, things like that or, or discussing business models. Or, so it, it's very large variety of different things that um, which excites me really it's really fun to to have this large span of different things but but it's still one theme i would say in, in what i do now and everything kind of revolves around uh, network slicing and how we can enable the 5g type of use cases moving ahead so that's the focal point of everything i do uh, right now for, for the last few years i would say Wow. I, um, it, it reminds me, I was talking to somebody recently, I won't name the brand, uh, but um, they're in a similar situation around cloud and big data analytics and uh, I guess a similar career path of a couple of decades. And one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing from what you've got is you've got this long-term career path and pedigree that people can drive into, but now you've got the opportunity to have a foot in many camps and, and bring that expertise and experience to those and help them sort of get through problem-solving, design, strategy, planning, all the way out to the client uh, engagement, I guess. Um, given that you've got this client-facing thing, I'm always keen to understand what's happening out in the market. I mean, uh, with the sort of, in your current role in particular, and, and the different opportunities and challenges you're talking about from the R&D support through to strategy and design and whatnot, the customer-facing piece, I mean, um, tell us a bit about what you're doing with the customer-facing things. How are you helping some of these companies solve some of the tra- challenges they're facing around the transition to, I guess, you know, uh, operational shift of the, the cloud models and some of the transition to 5G enablement and particularly network slicing? And I guess, you know, what sort of innovations are you bringing to them and, and how do you help solve them some of those transitional challenges? Right. No, I, th- I think that part also changes over time of course if if i look back a couple of years when we started to to work with network slicing and, and and 5g in general the type of customer interactions we had back then was i mean we we started to do early exploration we did proof of concepts like we did uh, proof of concept with sk telecom in korea on network slicing or is it? I don't remember how many years. Is, is it three years ago or something like that? Uh, now we we did a lot of work with uh, Entity Docomo, developing concepts around it and ex- exploring how this te- te- technology would work. Uh, then, then we have. I mean, moving on, it it we started to look at other aspects. Also, we have been working on. I mean, for for instance, we uh, realized that that. It, in order to really understand how to do this, we need to understand the the economical aspects of it better. What what we had a intuitive feeling that that network slicing would bring uh, economical benefits in terms of increased revenue, better time to market and customer, uh, even lo- lower opex or or, or, or capex uh, and so on. And and then we did uh, economical uh, study. Uh, with British Telecom, where we really went into details, comparing different scenarios to see how 
is that true? That do you really get that uh, those benefits that we thought there would be? Uh, and we saw very clearly that you you do indeed did get those benefits, assuming that that you also uh, have the needed automation. So I mean, automation is is really key to to unlock these new new values that that you uh, need to have more orchestration, more more closed loop monitoring and those kind of things that it all goes together you cannot really enable these new business opportunities without that the, um, at least not if you want the economical benefits a couple of questions on that. i mean uh, one of the things firstly is maybe we should probably just um highlight what network slicing is in plain terms for some of the listeners who might not have come across yes. it or have heard it and and also yeah. i'm really keen to circle back just on not necessarily just bt but uh, you highlighted bt there where you were doing some of the proof of concept or trials and and proving those business cases i'd love to get back into that um i mean we think about network slicing uh, you know the thing that comes to mind is i guess it's virtualization of the network capability it's it's a whole range of the stack around creating uh you know logical networks across some of the common infrastructure how do you describe network slicing in plain english if you were to walk into a boardroom and get a whiteboard marker and sort of you know perform jedi mind tricks on the on the board yeah. how do you do that in sort of 30 30 seconds to sort of for people to understand from a lay person you know what some people might say explain to me like i'm a three-year-old um, network slicing in a nutshell what does that sound like in your your language yeah no no it, i would very much describe it in that way also it, it's really you, you could say that it's taking the, I mean, ma- many people are aware of the virtualization paradigm where you went from physical service with, with embedded software to, 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 to an infrastructure on top of which you create virtual machines. Network slicing is in, 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 to a large degree about doing the same thing with the whole network, that we, we create logical networks on top of a shared infrastructure platform which is basically where all the hardware and, and those things that common assets are and then we we create logical networks that we build for uh, specific use cases specific customers or, or industry segments that can very much be and behave like independent isolated networks which you can customize you can optimize them to get give the customer the right uh, characteristics for the services. You can even manage and, and operate them independently. So you could you could even have like an independent operating unit within an operator that run a slice or a couple of slices that are very independent from other network slices because because of this concept of logical networks. You, you can create that independence like, just like you do for virtual machines that they are independent of each other and and that's really where many of the gains that we saw in economical study comes from that from this isolation that you you know that if i make changes to one slice it will not have impact on another slice neither on from a characteristics point of view but nor nor from a uh, operational point of view if i if i uh, get uh, like downtime uh, one slice because of a malfunction it will not affect the other slice because we have created this uh, isolation and and you can yeah you get more agility uh, that by, by by being able to 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 do these changes more rapidly in one slice without having to worry about that uh, the other uh, that that that's that was a bit more than 30 seconds. But, no, but, that's, but, uh, that's perfect. <laughs> but, but that's about how I usually describe it. 
No, it's a perfect. I, I often, um, uh, somebody asked me the other day and the way I approached it was very similar to that, but I came from a, a cloudy form and I said, look, um, you know, if you understand how the cloud works and if you understand that, you know, we, we don't worry about the hardware anymore, we don't worry about routers and switches and servers and, and you know, intrusion prevention, intrusion detection and logging and whatnot, you just assume that you can stand up a virtual machine. Now we've gone to Kubernetes and Docker and you don't even have a virtual machine anymore. You have effectively services and microservices and you just stand things up. And um, so I said, well, think about it in the same way that you would a Docker instance. When you deploy something into a Docker instance or even a virtual machine in the cloud, you assume that all the bits are there and you assume that the quality of service and the performance is there and the memory and the disk's there. And then I linked it back to, I guess, what, um, and correct me if you think this is wrong, but I sort of said, remember the sort of X25, X21 network technology where we had like private virtual circuits? We just established a PVC. We assumed everything was there and it worked. And if it didn't create a, or establish a connection, then we knew the capacity wasn't there. And I think this is where network slicing is taking us at where the telco infrastructure is a service and we can call on that from an API level, depending on what the, the solution is, whether it's a VPN or, or some sort of routing and whatnot, um, or even an app. And that whole cloudy thinking of just instantiating software-defined infrastructure, software-defined networking, network function virtualization, we can slice and dice the network. And they were like, oh, okay, now I get that. Uh, and I think this is a big challenge, isn't it, that I'm sure you see this, and I'd love to come back to the, the sort of use cases and business cases you covered with BT, but often it's a challenge even getting some of the fundamental concepts across because there's no point even having a, con a conversation with anybody uh, at any level unless they understand what they're talking about because otherwise they sit there glazed-eyed, right? No, true. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, th I think it's a sort of a very lot of potential and a very powerful vision. At the same time, there are a lot of of challenges to 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 make it there. I mean, you need. I mean, everything depends on that you have a solid uh, cloud slash NFV platform in place that you build the automation capabilities. I mean, that that from a tech technical point of view, you need to do that, but. What people also often forget is that you need to transform the operations, the processes, the way you work. Um, because if you don't do that, you don't get the benefits. I mean, to, to be able to, to benefit from automation, you, you need to have a way of, of moving from a very manual model where you need to do a lot of uh, review reviews and and approvals for every change you you do to the network to a model where you maybe do the more reviewing uh, and approval uh, ahead of time uh, but once you you create these slices so why once you do things it needs to be automated you cannot if 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 you want to be quick and and deliver something to a customer quickly you cannot spend weeks or even months on, on reviewing and doing a lot of manual work so it's a lot of change that needs to hap happen from yeah. moving to, to that paradigm, and which is why we uh, say that y you really need to start and, and take it step by step. It's not like there's a magic technology that will suddenly solve all the problems. You, you need to, to, it's a journey, and you need yep. to start the, the, taking the early steps. Got to learn to uh, you, crawl and walk and then run and then sprint, right? <laughs> Exactly. There are, there are no shortcuts, really. Uh, technology can help for sure, and it's an, uh, it will absolutely do, but, but there are no shortcuts. 
You uh, you mentioned a couple of things earlier on. I mean, uh, working with BT, and I'm sure others. I know you're working with a whole bunch of, of carriers and operators around the world, and certainly here in Australia, and the Optuses and the Telstras in my backyard. There were two big mm. things that jumped out at me. Um, I guess the use cases and the business cases I was very interested in, but also you mentioned earlier on when we were talking before we hit record um, around the, some of the transitional changes that they're facing, uh, challenges in with you know when network slicing comes about, and, and the operators and telcos are trying to get, I guess, that into an operational form. And in many ways, I see this as is kind of like a self-service capability when you're in the cloud often what you do with orchestration tools as you know is you, you create like a dashboard and a self-service sort of um, operational space where people can go and you know i guess click on a button they get a virtual machine with some sort of platform their managers approved a certain amount of spend i see network function uh, the network function and i saw the orchestration functions being same where telcos and operators will pre-configure and pre-engineer and pre-approve network sliced technology in different forms and and the end user can click and say, I want a VPN now, I want a voice circuit, whatever, and it just get it's pre-approved if it's in their, their I guess, their um, policies and whatnot. Where do you see some of the biggest um, challenges? I mean, you know, you talked earlier on about operational transformation. You talked about some of the, the key business benefits they're gaining there. Um, where are you seeing the, the two big challenges around the operational shifts for digital transformation and cloud transformation into uh, engaging network slicing? What are people coming up against? Yeah. I think apart from, of course, the, the more processes, I, I think that one, one, one challenge is obviously how to make, uh, I mean, it's not sufficient to, to just be able to orchestrate the, the network slices and set, set them up. I mean, that's one thing that we need and there are for sure challenges there. But the big challenge, I, I think, is, is in how you scale it. Uh, I often get the question, okay, how many network slices will there be? And, and uh, which is a hard question to, to answer. Sometimes I say, say answer 42 just for the sake of giving an answer. <laughs> the but, meaning but, of but, life, but, the universe and everything, right? <laughs> exactly. But, but I mean, honestly, it it's really boils down to how well do you master the automation? So, I mean, if you think of it like, I mean, if you ask the question, how many processes can there be in, in an operating system? Yeah. yeah, there can be any number because they are so autonomous and, and, and they, they work like a, a clock. I mean, if we were able to, to build these network slices in such a way that they also worked very autonomously, self-healed and, 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 and self-scaled and all that, there's no not a whole lot of limitations on how many there could be. But... but of course, we're not there yet. So, so, as, so during the phase of where we have to perfect that technology, there will be practical limitations. And I think that to really get the, the full benefits, we need to walk that path and, and to, 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 yeah. to gradually uh, improve in terms of automation capabilities and then gradually adopt the, 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 uh, the processes um, that that will enable us to do more and more advanced use cases and more and more uh, network slices, and uh, we also think that uh, one one thing that's important to point out is that I mean we often talk about network slicing in the context of five G, uh, and that's I mean the reason is that I mean it's very much associated and driven by this type of five G use cases that that. Uh, 
uh, is associated with 5G, whatever it is, smart grids or, or self-driving cars or, or uh, whatever. On the other hand, we see that in reality, many of these use cases are can equally well be done with 4G technologies. So we don't we don't see network slicing as tightly coupled to 5G access or 5G core, although it's sort of from a uh, business point of view is, is connected to 5G. So we think that we should really start early, use it even with 4G when, when, when it makes sense from a business point of view. And then gradually 5G will come and, and add more advanced capabilities to it as well. Yeah, I'm glad he say that because it's something that comes up quite often and, and it's almost one of the unspoken secrets that there's a lot of assumptions around what you're talking about with you know, the cloud transformation, the digital transformation, some of the operational shifts. And, and I'm sure there's a, a massive behavioral cultural shift just in the resourcing and staffing and the way the business is run. But not many people talk about the fact that a lot of these technologies will work with 3 and 4G networks. Uh, it just happens to be that the focus is the transition to 5G because it's almost like saying that uh, you know Windows 7, 9, 10, 11, whatever, uh, all runs on the cloud. You know, No one really necessarily cares about the operating system unless they have a particular need for it. They just want the functionality. And I think this is something that a lot of listeners that we're going to have today are, are keen to hear that Yes, we want to make the transition to 5G. There's a lot of business benefits there. And, and particularly if, you, if you've if you read the uh, 5G World and uh, IoT Summit that was recently uh, held in uh, uh, London a week or so ago, there was a, a paper that came out of that where um, uh, the Ericsson team uh, looked at something like 200 different 5G-enabled uh, use cases across 10 industries. And away yeah. from, I read that, I was like, you know, there's a lot of focus on 5G that's great. But um, one of the things that I like hearing you say is that this this is, able to be, I guess, you know, backward compatible, if you like, and that is that a lot of the technologies will be able to carry 4G, you know, virtual infrastructure. Because, um, you know, there's some big industries with a lot of very big sunk costs invested into some of this stuff around. And I think there was like 10 industry groups from memory that came out of this 5G IoT Summit paper the other day. And I'm testing my memory now. But I think it was like manufacturing, engineering, utilities, and public safety, and healthcare, and transport, and media, entertainment, automotive, financial, retail, and I think agriculture from the top of my head. But I think they found something like 200 different use cases out of which are like 400 final solutions. Uh, but when I read it, it was like, you know, most of those still work for 4G. Uh, is that something that comes back from the companies you're working with as far as the operators? And that? Do they, is one of the things they ask you, or maybe it's the first one, is like, that's great for 5G when we transition, but what about today? Are they still, you know, I mean, obviously they've got to, they've got to operate today, right? Yeah, and I, and I would say that I mean, in many cases, the the I mean, trials, um, pucks we have we have done and 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 is with based on 4G because it is possible with 4G. I mean, when I mentioned the what we did with uh, SKT early on, that was all 4G. We have I mean, made some. Uh, uh, so, so been supporting Swisscom, for instance, in that we did some demos in in, in Barcelona about um, uh, transport-related uh, use cases. That that's all possible with 4G technology. Uh, yeah, you can do a lot with 4G and and DPC, although maybe not as much as with with 5G. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I don't think I'd ever get into an autonomous taxi that wasn't being uh, routed over 5G. I remember there was like, um, reading this uh, latest paper from the 5G World IoT Summit, I think they were talking about like, you know, different use cases across like 52% focus on autonomous robotics, 47% in connected vehicles. And there was a heavy 5G uh, focus on that because of the, the low latency and, and, and high throughput. Mm -hmm. So I don't know yeah. I necessarily want to get in a car that was being autonomously operated 
uh, by uh, you know an AI or even remotely operated by a driver as if it's a drone because I don't think I trust 4G latency on a public carrier to, to make me sure. turn the corner and not go over the cliff at the right time. So there's a lot of those. Mm. But I, I imagine that you know network slicing for delivery of, of, of voice and video and, and email would be a no-brainer. Um, where do you see the biggest transformation challenges for operators? I mean, when they think about, uh, you know, on one side, I see you've got a foot in the R&D space and you're supporting the, the, the team as a subject matter expert uh, in, in that whole network architecture evolution role that you've got. But at the other end of the uh, functional shift to putting some of this in place, um, what are one or two of the sort of the key things where I guess, you know, the key benefits that they like when you when you're talking to clients and they say well what's in it for us i mean I, there's obvious things like you know faster time to market reduced operational cost or automation but what are some of the business cases that you put forward saying well you're going to onboard maybe more customers quickly or you're going to reduce the the cost of, of onboarding or they can solve service what are some of the really big business benefits you you you're talking about with some of these companies like bt and so forth that they see in the the like eureka moments they're going oh that makes sense we need to do that yeah, I mean, the business benefits, I mean, the main main thing is, of course, to enable new use cases uh, and, and, and to, to to get the part of that new revenue streams. We, I mean, that's one thing people often f- forget when that, that they kind of think about this with a sort of a mobile broadband mindset and, and network slicing is not really about, you could for sure use it in and give some value to mobile broadband moving forward as as well. But it's really about being able to address business opportunities that you couldn't before by by being better at at providing customers what they need. Lower latency might be one, higher uh, availability, better security. So, I mean, mean, more control of, of, of... quality of service. I mean, there are many, many different aspects. So, so I mean, the, the mindset is really about being able to give each customer, and now, now I mean like enterprise customer, what they want. So, so I mean, the goal is really to have like a Le- Lego, box of Lego pieces where you can put things together easily to satisfy uh, that customer's needs. There, there will probably be some standard designs or blueprints which you can like pre-deliver but 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 as well but but then it's all about being able to to easily adapt and customize for for the different customers and then of course i mean what do you gain by that yes you you get uh, that business i mean the alternative might be not if you, if you cannot address their requirements they might go somewhere else or they might uh, scrap their whole uh, digitalization journey because they cannot really get what they want from op- uh, from the operators. So, so it's about uh, being able to to at all address uh, the business. So, uh, a part of the benefits comes from that. It, it's also like a long tail aspect. I believe it was seen in this study that that you, you can uh, address customers that you that would be hard to address other ways because they are small or too, too, too niche oriented. Yeah. I remember reading the, uh, the latest consumer labs report from Ericsson. Um, it was uh, released and announced at uh, TM forums, uh, digital transformation world in Nice in France a couple of weeks ago. I had the privilege of being there and um, it was interesting to see the insights from that, that, uh, there were two tiers of consumer. I mean, I guess you're talking about your client base being the carriers and the operators, but they're also their clients in turn, 
what was interesting was that the operators wanted to be able to be self-serviced um, with a combination between uh, either leveraging their current sunk infra- costs and infrastructures by by being able to do network slicing and, and software-defined everything themselves. But at the same time, their customers, as the end users with the mobile devices and phones and laptops and whatever, wanted to be self-serviced. And I, it was interesting to see the multiple tiers where the operators themselves wanted to almost be self-serviced and just log into an Ericsson portal and go, stand me up a VPN. And I guess that's mm-hmm. a challenge, isn't it, now, where network function virtualization and then and network slicing on top of that, you sort of got this challenge where Ericsson has its telco cloud and offers this sort of, you know, telco in a box in the cloud, but also you've got to interoperate in the hybrid space between the operator's infrastructure themselves and what you roll out versus what you offer as a, as a service. Um, mm. do, you, uh, do you see the shift being away from operators having a lot of infrastructure themselves and transitioning to the likes of Ericsson to provide that as a service, in, in, you know, like telco as a service over time? Or do you think we're still a long way from that and the operators still want to uh, have a lot more control over their infrastructure for whatever reason. I think we see. I mean, we see some signs of going in that direction, and I mean, it, it could of course be as always that there will be a different difference between different types of operators that uh, between tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, and so on. Maybe regional differences as well. I mean, in in the same way as as in general cloud there's a difference between large enterprises and smaller enterprises smaller ones might be more willing to to outsource and and so on so yeah but there, there's a lot of things that's hard to 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 see here where it's going there, there's so many different uh, uh, directions it could take which is also i think a reason why the automation of flexibility is so important because we need we need to have a very flexible uh, solution and mindset because we don't we don't necessarily know exactly where things will go and it will be made be different from operator to operator and market to market. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with that, you. I think that, uh, that, that's one possible. Hilton didn't see uh, Airbnb coming along, and uh, the taxi industry didn't see um, Uber coming along, and uh, there's a bunch of other examples like that. Mm. Uh, mm. And I'm sure that uh, retail didn't expect uh, Alibaba to, to appear on the scene either. But no. um, no. Uh, I, I, I think you're absolutely on the money there. And that is that, you know, you've got regional challenges. You've got uh, existing investments uh, for the large operators, for whatever reason, may need to get a return on that investment. Or you may have startups appear that offer different levels of services and a hybrid of the, both of those. Before, yeah. look, I really appreciated some of the insights there. Before we wrap up, though, one of the things I'd love to do, uh, and as I mentioned before, I love giving my guests a, a fun challenge uh, based on what you were just talking about there where we we don't really know what's coming across the horizon because there's a lot of big disruptions and you know ericsson's been through a full digital transformation internally and i guess you know turned its own organization inside and out and and now sort of you know demonstrated to the world if, if ericsson can do it everyone else can do it um if i was to hand you a virtual crystal ball and and get you just to gaze into that for a moment based on what you're just saying before where we don't necessarily know what's around the corner yet you're in a better position than most people in the world that have had the chance to, to talk to and get in the studio. Um, what's your gut feeling? And, you know, feel free to uh, riff on this and, and sort of, you know, imagine because it's not going to affect the Ericsson share price. We're not going to hold you to this. But if you were to kind of just based on your gut feel, you're out there on the bleeding edge, you're seeing some of the most exciting things from your R&D labs all the way through to the, the studio there in, in Schuster and in Stockholm, out to the client uh, bleeding edge and the consumers working with the BTs of the world. 
where are we going the next sort of one, two, three, five years? I mean, telco is a big industry. It doesn't turn around overnight, but there are some big things coming. You, you must have some insights that you could probably share if you gazed into that crystal ball. What's your, what's your gut feeling of what's coming over the horizon for us? Yeah, no, I, I really believe that we will go to reach this um, idea of a very dynamic, programmable, programmable network where the network is really a platform that is entirely programmable where we can satisfy many different uh, needs, many different use cases. Uh, some, I mean, some of them we we kind of know and talk about uh, in in the industry and and. Uh, uh, but what we, what really excites me about it is really if we can reach the state where where we can serve the the unimagined use cases. I, I think that's the, the the most important things that and that's what really excites me to see what what can come that we don't expect. There are some. I mean, I think we can be pretty sure that it will not be exactly the use cases we have been we are talking about. It, it seldom is, but it, it, it's more exciting if we can uh, really uh, enable what is not uh, expected. I, I think, I mean, if you think about the creators of the, the uh, and the early pioneers of the internet, did they expect uh, uh, Facebook and, and Google and all the stuff we do on the web today? No, they didn't, but they, but they, but they had a belief on on the the potential of the technology and the platform. I, I think, to me, it's this is the same thing that we we uh, really enable things that we don't know. And looking at the bit on the technology, I, I mean, what this I think has a lot of potential is is the whole AR VR thing. Although it's maybe a bit early yet, the technology is not. Uh, as mature it as as it has to to be, but I think that that could really change a lot uh, in ways that we cannot really Im- imagine when when moving forward. And, and for many industries, when we really take advantage of that technology, and and their network, the network will be a fundamental enabler. I think for for those services. I like that. That's um. That's a perfect note to wrap up on and some great insights. And thank you very much for that. Um, Hendrik Basilia, expert network uh, architecture evolution inside uh, Ericsson's uh, business area, digital services. Uh, Thank you so much for making time to catch up. It's been great to get to know you, get to know your role. And and thanks very much for sharing so much insight into kind of your personal life and your career path and also your role and some of the big things you're working on. Really been great to talk to you. Great talking to to you as well, Das. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, thank you.